Welcome to Truth and Focus. I'm your host, Gordon Teeson. Today, we'll be listening to a message by Dr. Rick Holland. Dr. Holland was recently in Columbus, Nebraska for the Bold Church Conference that was hosted by Highland Park Church. We had a number of our students, our senior Bible class, that were able to attend and listen to Dr. Holland's message. So we wanted to bring that message to you today, our listeners. So let's join Dr. Holland with the message. Wow, very, very kind and gracious words. I am uh, I'm humbled to be here. Justin, thank you for the vision for this conference, for uh, bringing uh, people out into, well, between the pastures, I guess is where we are right here, out in Columbus. I, uh, I was driving in last night trying to avoid deer um, and uh, just glad to be out here. I am profoundly thankful for you and your wife. Um, it's good to see what the Lord's done with your little family and how they are growing um, and you're growing your family as well. And I'm uh, very thankful to be here for, for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, th- this is an incredibly intimidating moment for me for a lot of reasons and from different angles. First of all, you just, you just don't preach with Al Mohler. That's just wrong at so many levels. You, um, that's like, you know, the bat boy was out picking up Babe Ruth's bat, and they said, while you got that in your hand, why don't you get in the box? This, thank you very much, Justin, for having me with him and letting him go first. That was very encouraging. Actually, you know, it's been a great day. Let's just close in prayer. Can we do that? And, it's, uh... and I'm also doubly humbled because, uh, where is Rod Gertson? There's Rod. Uh, Rod Gertson was the pastor for 19 years at Mission Road Bible Church. It used to be Southwest Bible Church, and the name changed a decade or so ago. And uh, he was, he's been there for for uh, 19 years, almost two decades, and I am able to have the honor of pastoring the church where he was for, for almost 20 years, and, uh, and he's here. So um, I, I, if, if we could just shorten the conference or pray for the rapture right now, that would be very good for my pride and be helpful. Um, Rod, every, every week, if not every day, it's, uh, you are constantly a reference point. At our church, and I don't get a chance to do this in very many places or very often, but for a, a man to be faithful in one place for so long um, is just almost unheard of in our generation. People have asked me over the last uh, year and, and change since I've been at Mission Road, um, how, how was the transition? How hard has it been? And it's a little embarrassing to say there was no transition, and it has not been hard. And that's because the the work that Rod you did and the and the the road that you paved that I'm now driving on, and we are, you will be never replaced and always remembered at Mission Road. Thank you for that work. We'll take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. The book of Hebrews chapter 10, when Justin and I began speaking at this conference uh, several months ago, he asked that I would isolate my sermons and the teaching on the subject of the church which is like saying to a kid, go into the candy store and pick anything you want and you can eat it. This is among my favorite subjects. It should be yours if you're a pastor, an elder, a deacon in leadership. But it also also should be yours if you go to a church, if you're a member of a church, if you care about the church. Because as we'll see from this passage, the gospel and church ministry are inseparably linked in the thinking of the mind of the Holy Spirit as he inspired this and all of the texts about the church. Hebrews chapter 10, very familiar territory. Let me read beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we 
have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Back in the spring, I had, to, um, I had the privilege of going over to Samara, Russia uh, to teach at a conference. There was a conference in Germany, a shepherd's conference in Germany that I, I, I ministered at and then went to Samara uh, from there. It, it's always fun to say I was at the German shepherd's conference. But um, uh, there's a guy over here who just got that. So that's... Uh, <laughs> So we were traveling from, uh, there was a group of us, a couple of our elders and their wives, and my wife and I were traveling from Frankfurt on a red eye from Frankfurt over to Samara, Russia. And as we got on, um, there were, there, there were two, there was a couple sitting behind us, one of the couples, the, the, between the six of us, and two of us were on an aisle and a middle seat, aisle and a middle seat, and on the opposite ends of the window seats were two men who were seated from Russia who were separated, but they wanted to be together. Well, they, they kept asking, can, can we trade and change? We, we obviously were, were using um, charades because we didn't know each other's language. It was very clear they wanted to sit by each other, but that meant one of us had to move, and um, we weren't overly excited about that. But after we got up in the air, we finally did that, and they, the one guy on the far side moved over. My wife moved over uh, with Bob and Kathy, and um, we uh, were, uh, it was me on the aisle, and these two Russian guys. Well, I knew I was in trouble when as he was moving from the one seat other over to sit by me, I heard that he had a bag full of glass bottles. And he had, he had done some shopping at the duty-free shop. And uh, it was full of uh, all sorts of alcohol. I, I, I don't drink. I've never drank. I, I just, I don't even know what it was, but I just knew it was a lot of stuff that was very alcohol-ick. Well, finally he sits down, and we, I, my wife has moved over. over. He understands I've, I've sacrificed my wife on this four-hour flight over. It's not a big deal. And so he's, in his broken English, he says, um, We thank you, so we drink together. And they pull out these bottles. This was when the meal, after the meal had come. And I have this, this empty coffee cup. You know how if you fly and there's a meal, there's usually a water and there's this empty coffee cup. So he grabs my coffee cup and he fills it full of gin. You say, how, does he, how did you know it was gin? Because he poured it right in front of my face and it said gin. And he pours me gin. I'm a pastor. I'm going to preach at a conference. I have my elders with me and they don't know what I'm saying. And this guy's pouring me a glass of gin. And so everybody's looking down the road going, this is going to be interesting. What's going to happen here? This is not the pastor that Rod thought had come to his church. And so I said, oh, no, 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 I, I, I don't drink, no drink, alcohol, yuck, bad, no, nyet, nyet, nyet. And um, so I give it back to him. Well, he's offended. 
He is so offended. Oh no, oh no, you, you, we must drink together. You're kind to us. And, 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 and yet, I knew no. So yet, yet. And so I, had, I gave him that drink. Well, I turned around to, to say, Kim, help. And I turned around, and now he's filled up his coffee cup, and it's on my thing, and it's full of gin. Well, I, I, I ended up not drinking gin, for the record. But he said, why you no drink? Now, have you ever tried to explain your Christian convictions about liberties through a foreign language? It was impossible. And I was trying to say no, and I, I, uh, I, I'm a Christian. Um, um, John 3.16, so I opened John 3.16. And I said, for God, God, Bog, so love world. Gave Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Every, the best I could to try to get into the gospel. And uh, once this guy finds out that I'm a Christian, I'm going to tell you, he thought I was a sissy. So he says, oh, we know Christians. We are hunters. So he pulls out his iPad, and he begins to show me these, these Russian boar pigs that he's, he's shot and everything, and I'm like, oh. Oh, that's great. Good mean. I'm, I'm describing. He's trying to like intimidate me. And so I said, that's good. And so then I got out my iPad and showed him some stuff that I'd hunted. I said, I said, you hunt with rifle. Bad, bad. Me, bull. <laughs> and I showed him, you know, some stuff I shot in Africa, a warthog and an impala and showed him a uh, a bear that I stuck and a, several deer and lots of pigs and at this point this guy's like what, what have we gotten ourselves into sitting with this guy and then I showed him a picture of my son who last spring shot a bear in Alaska and when he saw my son with his rifle sitting this is Nebraska I can talk about this right okay good not California very good very good you know in California this is when the the people get up and they, they act sick and they walk out of the door but so when he saw my son with that bear, he was really impressed and then began to try to listen to me. And I had about, I thought, two minutes to give him as much of the gospel as I could because they were drinking fast. Um, and I knew this was going to be a soused situation pretty quickly. So I did my best to explain the gospel. Well, here's the, the deal. In, in, in the end, I knew he didn't understand. And the only thing I could do in desperation, was to pull out the church address of the church where I was going to do this conference and to simply say, you need to go to this place to hear about God and Jesus. Well, they drank pretty heavily for the next half hour and then took a really solid nap. I got to thinking about that encounter and it dawned on me the the fulcrum, the overwhelming power, the overwhelming weight, gravity, and responsibility of telling a man everything. I thought about what I said. Everything you need to know, you can find out here in this address. What an amazing statement to make about a church. Is that the case with our churches? Do we utter with Jesus the words of eternal life so that people will say, where else can we go? 
because this church teaches God's word that contains the words of eternal life. Every Christian should be an ecclesiologist. You should be a theologian about the nature and the ministry of Christ in his church. How much do you know about what the Bible says about the church? What would you do if you were asked what the church is? What would you do if you were asked what the church isn't? Every believer needs a theology of the church, and yet we are living in a day in which the church has been overlooked, ill-defined, redefined, misrepresented, underestimated, mischaracterized, miscalculated, ignored, spurned. It's even been attacked, and everything I just said comes from the lips of people who say they're Christians. If the church is the bride of Christ, and we know it is, I wonder sometimes if Jesus is as offended by how some people treat his bride who say they belong to the church as you and I would as men if someone came up and slapped our wives in the face. You can't talk about Christianity very long without inevitably talking about the church. It's impossible. Most people wrongly identify the gospel with the church. They would say, well, uh, uh, you would try to get into a gospel conversation with them, and their immediate answer is, well, I don't go to church. That's almost the equivalent in their mind. And I want to tell you, that's not necessarily a bad association they have in their mind, that something about church means something about a relationship with God. Now, wrongly so. You don't become a Christian by coming to church. Just being in the seat doesn't make you a Christian. But how do you think about church? How's your theology, your ecclesiology about the church? Churches are not for tours. I was in Europe with, with that team. We, were, we went through several cathedrals, and it was a bizarre thing. You've been, have you been to Europe ever and seen these massive cathedrals? You have to pay some money. You go through and you look at it, and they say, be quiet. And I just want to say, have you ever read Psalm 150? It's a loud psalm. It's very loud. Drums, cymbals, lots of banging things in Psalm 150. Why are we being quiet? Is God asleep? One of the guys was with us, wore his hat in there just on purpose. And the, the, guy, the, the gal came over, and just this one church, just wearing him out. You cannot wear a hat in the church. And so he said, why? It's irreverent. And he said, why? Because... It's bad. Where did you get that idea? And finally, after about five minutes, she said, my boss told me to say that. Where does our authority about thinking of things related to the church really, really come from? We were touring some of those museum churches. and I call them museum churches. You know, the church is not to be a museum for the truth. It's supposed to be a hospital for the soul. And yet they treat them as these museums where... You know, Isaiah 66, an amazing passage. God says, the earth, uh, the universe is my, uh, heaven is my throne and the, and, and the earth is just my footstool. I just kick my feet up on it. I, where, you're going to make a building for me that I'm impressed with, talking about the temple, which was made way more significant and magnificent than anything we could have ever, ever in our best ingenuity create. He says, you're going to build something I'm impressed with? It's like walking into having, you know, a... Uh, Dinner with Rembrandt. You're walking into the kitchen with he and his wife, and, and you feel like, okay, we didn't bring a housewarming gift, so you see one of his paintings on the wall, you take it off and you give it to him, and you say, I just want to thank you for having me here. 
He said, what are you talking about? I painted that. That's exactly what God's saying. Really? You're going to impress me with putting rocks and gold and stuff together? No. There's more about the covenant people of God in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament coming together in worship that's special way beyond the building. Now, the book of Hebrews, where we find ourselves this morning, is all about comparisons. And I would say Christianity is fundamentally a religion of comparison. Jesus, in this book, is compared to everything the readers thought was important, everything the readers thought was special. He's compared to angels. He's compared to prophets. He's compared to the law. He's compared even to sin and to pleasure. And especially, he's compared to the most holy person they knew, the high priest in Israel. The invitation of the book of Hebrews is compare Jesus to the best of anything in any category that you think will provide you something to be impressed with or something to be pleased with. And Jesus will be measured against anything and everything as better in every dimension. The book builds, the book builds, the book builds into chapter 10 where now he lets loose with his so what? Every good sermon has a so what moment, a so what element. So so what do I do with this? And he dives into that by showing the gospel that he's been preaching, the gospel that he's been proclaiming and explaining over these previous nine chapters and shows how the gospel fuels a Christian's involvement in church. Okay, it's Jesus. It's the gospel. He's the high priest. He's, he's the only one. He's the only sacrifice. He's the one who's the once for all sacrifice that, that counted for, for the sins of all who would believe and not to be repeated. So what? Well, we get that so what here in chapter 10. And we'll follow along this passage, if you want a, an outline, by looking at how does the gospel fuel a Christian's involvement in church. That's an outline we're going to answer. Question we'll answer. How does the gospel fuel a Christian's involvement in church? The first reason is, the first uh, uh, um, way that it fuels a Christian's involvement is in verses 19 to 21. It provides Christ-centered motivation. Christ-centered motivation. Motivation for church is a strange thing. I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and um, uh, there was a a church uh, down the road that was... um, it, wanted, it had a school, it had a, a, a bus. It was a church bus. It would drive, drive around on Saturdays and give kids things and say, we'll be back tomorrow morning at 9 to pick you up and take you to church. Uh, I remember they, they gave me a bunny one time. Yeah, uh, try bringing that home to your mom. I've got a bunny. And my dad said, no, you don't. And I never know what happened with that bunny, but I didn't want to ask. What's the motivation for coming to church? What motivates you to come and to participate and to be involved in church? Well, verses 19 to 21 are a summary of the two main doctrinal points of the book of Hebrews. The first point is about our need to access God, our need for this access, how God provides that access. And that's set against the Old Testament covenant system of the sacrificial Ongoing sacrifices over and over, annual and monthly and weekly sacrifices. The second is that we need a high priest before God, and Jesus is that high priest. Those are the summary points here in verses 19 to 21. Understanding the priesthood is key to access to God. 
A priest was someone who stood between God and man and man and God. No one could just come into God's presence in the Old Testament way of thinking about that. It was impossible because of the actual physical nature of the tabernacle and the temple. In other words, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done are, are the concern of the writer of the Hebrews to the Hebrews. And so he wants to provide for us these motivations centered on that person and that work of Christ. Look at verses 19 and 20. Jesus is our access to God. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence. By the way, notice the plural on here. We, let us, let us, let us. We, we, we. This is a corporate dimension. Church is to be corporately maintained since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Christ by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh when you come to the word therefore in the Bible it's a flashing signal to stop and take note the therefores of the Bible indicate there's a cause and effect bridge therefore is an equal sign in a mathematical equation x plus y equals z therefore is is that 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 equal sign so much has come before him, this, therefore. Well, therefore what? Because Christ is better than everything, therefore. Because Christ has been compared to everything precious, therefore. Because the gospel is accessible and real, therefore. Because the gospel is precious, therefore. Have you ever felt timid about approaching a place that you, were, you just didn't feel you belonged a high office official that you went to see. I, I was invited one time uh, with a friend who was a member of the Secret Service to take a tour of the White House, and it was very interesting. When all of us came by the Oval Office, you just felt this hush, and you felt very uncomfortable, like, this is cool, but I don't belong here. Well, magnify that to the nth degree of divine trauma and you understand what's going on here the picture is you have a veil there was the veil that we all know about that barrier between man and God showing the holiness of God was was kept from incinerating the people of God who had come to see God in the temple God's eyes are too pure to look on any evil he cannot tolerate any sin Habakkuk 1.13 says the veil was that barrier to make sure that man could not carelessly and irreverently kind of enter into the holy place, the holy of holies, into God's presence. Even the high priest entered the day of the holy of holies, the day of atonement, with very meticulous preparations. He had to wash himself, put on special clothes, bring burning incense that would let off enough smoke so his eyes would never have a direct view of the ark. He would bring blood with him to make atonement from the sin, for sins. Hebrews 9, 7 says it so clearly. Only the high priest entered the inner room. Only the high priest. And that only once a year. And never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people who had committed, the sins the people had committed in ignorance. You didn't just go into the Holy of Holies. No one made an appointment with God. You didn't just say to the priest, I'd like a tour of the temple. And can I see, just like we saw the Oval Office in Washington, can I see the Holy of Holies, you didn't do that. This, by the way, is the passage that inspired Charles Wesley to write that lyric that we love to sing, bold, what? I approach the eternal throne. The gospel is saturated in these verses. Can I state the obvious? 
church is for Christians. I hate to even say that. Church is for Christians. It's for those who have come into that holy place having their blood, having their sins sprinkled and atoned for by the blood of Christ. Church is for Christians. We have a crisis today. We have such a crisis today. Church is actually being redefined before our eyes as something that's for unbelievers. I mean, it's just stymieing to, to the imagination. I think when our chapter of church history will be written, you could title it, The Time When So Many Thought That The Church Was For Unbelievers. What can we do to get unbelievers? Think about this. It sounds so, sounds so wonderful. We, we, we don't stop to, to see the reality of whether it's true or not. We, we want unbelievers to come to church. Now, I want unbelievers to come to church. I, I don't want them to not come. I want them to come and hear the gospel and be, be um, provoked by what we're saying and see the intensity and burning power of God's word. But the church is not fundamentally for unbelievers. Jesus said something in his uproom discourse, that final discourse to his disciples that you won't find in a lot of church growth, church growth books. This is not in any seeker-sensitive book that I know. John thirteen thirty five. Jesus said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for them. Is that what it says? No. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love unbelievers. No, that's not what it says. Jesus said, they will know you love me, that you belong to me when you love each other. You know what? An unbeliever should come into a church and feel welcome and cared for, but very, very left out. If the church loves unbelievers more than another believer, we have a problem. Remember what Paul did with the, the, in the Corinthians? He's, he's talking about liberty. He, says, he sets up this scenario. so beautiful. He says, let's say that you go to dinner with a Christian friend, a weaker Christian friend, and an unbeliever. The unbeliever asks you over, and he serves meat that's offered to idols, which was offensive to some uninformed um, Christians who had a weak conscience. He says, they put this meat before you. What do you do? It's a great test case, isn't it? What do you do? You have to choose whether you're going to offend your unbelieving host or your Christian brother. Now, the modern uh, lingo would say, well, what you do, obviously, is you, you, just, you, you care for the unbeliever because you're going to have plenty of time to deal with him later. You know what Paul said to do? Don't eat the food. Offend the unbeliever for the sake of loving your brother. It's... It's hard to believe that we're even talking about this, that the, the church is for Christians. Footnote, I love it when unbelievers come to church. I love unbelievers. We want them to be visited. Uh, we love visitors, and we want them to be welcome. We want to care for them. We're not going to be mean to them. It's not the S4, no more, shut the door on the unbeliever club. That's not who we are. And yet, according to Jesus, the unbeliever should look at the relationships in the body of Christ and go, wow, I'm jealous. No one loves me like that. I don't love like that. This is a different kind of relationships. These are different kinds of relationships being shared than I've ever experienced. It's tragic that so many churches are built on people they don't even have. People who don't even come to their churches. 
The church is in its purpose to equip and edify believers to do that work of evangelism out where they live, not only in the church building. Rick, are you saying that you can't evangelize in the church? No way. Listen, the gospel should be in every sermon, even if the gospel is not in the text. You should preach the Paul said, Woe to me, I'll be damned, literally. Let me be accursed, thrown into, into hell, Romans 9, uh, 1 Corinthians 9 says, if I don't preach the gospel. Yes, we should preach the gospel. Yes, it's okay for the unbeliever to come to church and believe the gospel, but not at the expense of doing what church is intended to do and be for believers. We'll come back to that. Jesus is our high priest in verse 21. Since we have this great high priest over the house of God. Here's the incredible blessing. Jesus is not only, not only the, the high priest, he's also the sacrifice. It's a bizarre kind of, of illustration he gives. He's the one who offers the sacrifice and he is the sacrifice at the same time. And again, God intends for us to compare everything to Jesus and discover his superiority. Priest Jesus was different from every other priest in countless ways, but mostly because he didn't just offer a sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. Isn't it amazing that we can sing that song by Wesley, Bold I Approach? Do do you understand the access we have to God? that an unbelieving saint would shudder to even think of. Secondly, how the gospel fuels Christians' involvement in church. This is a building passage. By stimulating church-wide cooperation. This is fun. By stimulating church-wide cooperation, and this is in verses 22 to 25. The key here is let us. It's used three times in this, these uh, few verses. Let us, let us, let us. And the plurals in the passage are also important. Since we let us. The Christian life is not an individual endeavor. It's a team sport. Christians who neglect the church become weird, unbalanced, and arrogant. You've seen them. You know them, right? They do church their way. I know of a man who has said, I will not go to church because I haven't found one that believes the way I believe and everything I believe. He is weird, unbalanced, and arrogant. We need each other. It's in, God has intended us to be with each other, to have an effect on one another that we'll see here in the next set of verses. That's pretty dramatic, pretty encouraging, and pretty in your face at the same time. It's because of what we possess in Christ that we have a serious obligation to live in a very specific, defined, and holy way. Look at this mutual collaboration in worship. Verse 22, let us draw near, (laughs) that's going into, beyond the veil, draw near in worship, in other words, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Now this verse presents a powerful, compact formula for how to worship, how to draw near to God. You have to be sincere in what you believe. Do you you really believe what you say you believe, or is it just children's tales? Is it easy to tell the, the kids that God parted the Red Sea than to really believe it? I mean, do you really believe the Bible? 
Do you really believe in 2 Kings chapter 6 that there's a group of Seminoids, some guys studying for the, for the prophethood. They're, they're studying to be prophets and they're, they're out, um, uh, they're like in seminary and they're building a place down by the river. It's going to have, have some beachfront property and they're building this place. This guy is so poor as all guys who go through seminary are that he borrows an axe head. He gets this axe head, puts his own stick in it. It obviously doesn't fit his stick. He's trying to chop and work on this building, the axe head flies off, goes in the bottom of the river. Remember what Elisha does? He gets a stick. Now, you've got to imagine this guy. He couldn't even afford one in the first place. How is he going to afford to replace this axe head? And Elijah goes over and gets a stick, puts it in the water, and the axe head floats. Do you, do you really believe that happened? Really, Honestly? Do you really believe the miracles of the Bible? Do you have the full assurance of faith that this book is utterly reliable? May I dare say it from verse 1 of chapter 1 of Genesis 1 on? He says we draw near to worship because we sincerely believe. Also he says we have been forgiven of our, of our most hidden sins, having our hearts sprinkled from, look at this, internals. In an evil conscience, that's internal, what's going on where no one sees. Our most hidden sins. And then the most outward sins, and our bodies washed with pure water. Glorifying God in our bodies, 1 Corinthians 6, 20 says. The effect of the gospel on the heart cleans the conscience inside and has effects on the body and our living outside. That's done with us. Let us do that together. Encouraging one another internally to be pure, externally to be pure, and to be sincere in what we believe. I think it would be a good thing if at church we just stopped each other and said, you are sure you believe in six-day creation, aren't you? you? Aren't you sure? Are you sure that you believe that axe head floated? Are you sure? Just to ask each other, to make sure. That's what this passage is intended to do. We draw together sincerely and we draw together plurally. Look at the mutual accountability and this disciplined perseverance that God calls us to. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. This verse is about the staying faithful. It's about staying faithful rather in what you believe and what you've confessed that you believe. It's a repetition, by the way, of Hebrews 4.14. The confession is the public affirmation of a belief. The hope is the gospel-saturated truth that we believe in heaven and, and hell and have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. Our hope is so important that Peter uses it as shorthand for the whole gospel. 1 Peter 3.15 But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense for, uh, to everyone who asks to give an account for the hope that's within you yet with gentleness and reverence. I love what he says there. We're reading through the book of Acts at Mission Road for our scripture reading. And we just uh, finished chapter 21 and 22. Remember Paul, he has a, he has a series of meetings. He's before um, uh, the, the, the temple, the, the Jewish officials there in Jerusalem in 21 and 22. And then he's going to be in front of Felix and Agrippa, his life is on the line. Paul's life is on the line. The greatest theologian who has ever lived. 
the one who penned so much of the New Testament that we hold precious as defining for us all things related to Christian doctrine. And when it came time for Paul, his life on the line, for Paul to give a defense for the hope that was within him, you know what he did? In both times, all three times? He gave his testimony. Don't ever underestimate the power of your testimony no matter how dramatic or even undramatic you think it is. My son uh, wants to be baptized. He's 12. I've always been a little hinky. How young do you go? You know, how, and uh, I, I was talking to Mark about his testimony, and he says to me, he says, Dad, I, I've heard some of the testimonies in baptism, and they, 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 they had such, such a... What did he say? He said they had such crazy stories about how they used to be like. And he says, I don't, I've never done any of that stuff. I said, Mark, your testimony is powerful and precious. Christians, don't, we, don't you want your kid's testimony to be, you know, I don't ever remember when I didn't believe. I always believed Easter and Christmas because the gospel, and I was explaining to him, Mark, the gospel is two parts. The gospel is a, is a set of facts you believe. That's 1 Corinthians 15, right? A set of facts you believe and a response to those facts. You've grown up believing those facts. Now it's time to repent and to respond to those facts. Your testimony is precious. You can tell that to anyone about the amazing work of God who gave you Christian parents who taught you the gospel since you were a baby and then one day you saw your sin for what it was and you repented and believed. Don't ever underestimate your, your testimony. Peter says, I'm, don't miss it. I want to be careful and ready to give a defense for the hope where? Within you. What the gospel has done in your life and in my life. Then he says, without wavering. We can hold this confession, this gospel belief, without wavering. It indicates the possibility of wavering. The possibility of stumbling, of wobbling, of defecting. But notice how the verse ends. The one who promised us hope in eternity, Jesus, he is faithful. He who began a good work in you, Philippians 1, will, he'll finish it. He'll complete it. This is the perseverance of the saints and it's tightly linked to the accountability and encouragement of the local church body. This is to be done corporately. The perseverance that we experience, our ongoing relationship with Christ is inextricably linked to the relationships we have with others. Verse 24. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. Mutual encouragement from strategic gatherings. Let us consider. Effective church involvement demands preparation and planning. It takes consideration. The gospel motivates us to motivate one another in gospel application. Just for a moment, would you turn back over to 2 Samuel chapter 11? You know this passage well, don't you? This is right in the middle of David's narrative. This is David and Bathsheba. There is a, an interesting 
kind of subterranean plot that moves through these, these verses that's very interesting related to the church's involvement with each other. Verse 1 of chapter 11, Then it happened in the time in the spring when kings went out to go to battle. That's always an intriguing verse to most people. What, what does that mean? Well, you, during that, that day, the rainy seasons came between like November, October, November, and went through uh, probably March. And if you're involved in a battle, this is, sounds bizarre, but you're basically involved in battle. When the rains came, no one could move horses or chariots. So they would say, we'll see you in the spring. And everybody go home. It's kind of a bizarre thing, but that's what they did. Well, it come, it's time this spring. It's time when the kings go out to battle. And David sent Joab his, uh, with his, and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon, besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. That's his first problem. We all know that. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. How was this? If you've ever been to uh, Israel, you know uh, off of the southern steps of the Temple Mount, uh, rolling over that ridge is the city of David. It's the Jebusite city. And it was terraced. So all the hills in the city of David, which was over that ridge on the south side of the Temple Mount, all of those, those uh, houses were built terraced into, the, into that ridge. It was Pretty, about a 45 degree incline. The king's palace, the king's house, would have been at the top, the most prominent place. He goes out on his roof, he's looking around, he looks down, it's very easy for him to see a woman bathing, and without being graphic, you don't bathe with your clothes on. The Hebrew here is very graphic. It says, the, the, the English says, and the woman, and the New American Standard, the woman was very beautiful in appearance. Basically, it says she was shapely. He was commenting, he saw her in her nakedness. So, David sent and inquired about the woman. One said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. When she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I'm pregnant. And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah, her husband, the Hittite. And you know the rest of the story. Here's what's very interesting about this passage. It's the Hebrew word shalech. You say, what is that? It's, it's, it's just a silly, simple word. And it means to send. Verse 1, David sent Joab. Verse 3, David sent and inquired about the woman. There's an answer. This woman's married. David, we know what you're up to, but this woman is married. We know her husband's name. We know her father's name. Verse 4, David sent messengers. Verse 5, she sent and told David. Then David sent, verse 6. Here's the deal. There's a lot of sending going on. A lot of people know what's going on here. This wasn't secret. It says after she had cleansed herself from her uncleanness, that was seven days. She stays in the king's palace seven days. What are the servants thinking? It's no... no Vain repetition, sent, 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 sent. And that's because God wants us to know that a lot of people know no one said stop. Well, you know the story. Look how it climaxes. The last verse of chapter 11. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 12. Then... 
the Lord, what? Sent. God says, you want to talk about sending? I'm, I'm going to send Nathan. This, this passage with David and Bathsheba answers Cain's question. What was Cain's question? Am I my brother's keeper? Had he stopped long enough for God to answer, the answer is, actually you are. You are your brother's keeper. That's the intent of this passage in the end of Hebrews. We are one another's keepers. We ought to be in each other's business. We ought to be confronting in each other's kitchens. Back to Hebrews. Christian love never winks at sin. Why don't we confront, by the way? Why don't we confront? You know why we don't confront? Because we love ourselves. Because we want to be liked so much that we don't want to jeopardize being liked by confronting someone because they may not like us again. So we just let their souls go to the devil. Don't miss the triad here, faith, hope, and love. Not forsaking, verse 25, our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We talk about, we could talk all day about why others miss church. The point here is why do, why do we miss church? Why, why do you miss church? Pastors, if we feel guilty pounding on you should come to church because it sounds self-serving. Didn't stop the writer of the Hebrews from saying you need to not miss church. Listen, time out. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're saying. There are legitimate reasons to miss church. When Kim, there was at one point with our boys, they were all, you know, uh, like four and under, and uh, we have three sons, Luke, John, and Mark. We skipped Matthew. I know. They're out of order. I know. If there's another one, it'll be Acts. We're not going back. (laughs) There were times when I remember Kim would miss seven weeks of church in a row. Now, that was unusual. I'm a pastor. I have to go to church. But one gets sick, mutates it, gives it to the other one. He gets sick, turns it green and yellow and gives it to the other one. He gets sick, then gives it to the mom, and she gets sick. And then the other one gets sick from the mom again. It's this cycle. Or is that just my family? It's, so there were times, there are legitimate reasons that you have to miss church, okay? I understand that. We all understand that. If you have the flu, don't come to church. And if you do, stay away from me, please. Okay? If you have the flu, please stay home. There are live streams. Take advantage of that. But I think the main reasons Christians skip church is a lack of preparation. We have a saying in my family, and the boys so weary of hearing it. Guys, Sunday morning begins... Saturday night. You ever wonder, why am I so tired on Sunday morning? Why is it hard to listen to the preacher? I mean, I was only up to 11.30 watching this thing, and midnight, really? Really? Sunday morning begins Saturday night. And I also believe that Satan whispers his best lies on Sunday morning. Ah, you're tired. It's been a long week. You can sleep in. And doesn't it seem, or is it just me, that if there can be an argument within the family ranks, it happens on Sunday morning? (laughs) This is a terrible thing. I was preaching one time out at Grace. In fact, I was preaching in big church 
with uh, for John uh, MacArthur, and um, <clears throat> I was I just made the statement that just I kind of offhanded that I believe Satan Satan always goes to church, right? He he always comes to church, and uh, I said I think Satan gets a ride to church in my van. And one of my sons leaned over to his mom and said, Dad, just call me Satan. <laughs> Kim didn't correct him for a long time. <laughs> Listen, there are reasons to miss church, but a lack of desire and a lack of preparation is not one of them. We come and... It's purposeful. You're coming ready to stimulate one another, to love, to good deeds. You're, you're, you're having fellowship that moves us toward Christian obedience and love for the Word and love for the Savior. I, I, can't, I can't talk about this without telling you the, the time I was in Krasnoyarsk, Russia, up in Siberia. It was in the middle of February, 35 below zero, and they don't even count windchill. Um, I, I, I've never seen cold like that. We uh, show up at church. They call it the church with the blue roof. It has a beautiful blue mosaic on the side. We show up to, and I was going to preach that day. I was one of five preachers that morning. Six-hour worship service. Um, you need to go to the bathroom before that thing starts, by the way. And we, we show up in the church parking lot. We're early. And there are like two cars there, just two. I walked into the building, probably about one and a half the size of this one, and I hear this just volcanic singing. And I thought, oh, the choir's here practicing. And I walked in, he says, and I asked him, I said, is that the choir? He says, come look. And walked in, and one whole side was filled, the rows were filled, and they were singing. Now, my first question is, how did they get here? Because there were no cars in the parking lot. The answer is, what? That they walk. Obviously, they walk. They don't have cars. It's 35 below zero. Second, I said, who's leading them? He says, when they finish a hymn, the, the next person just says, let's do number so-and-so. They get there two hours early just to sing with each other because Sunday is such a haven for them. Went back, prayed with the elders, came back. You sit on stage, you know, there's about seven of us there. And I noticed that right over here, right where you, you guys are sitting, there, there was a group, there was about four rows, all of little old women. And I said, they're obviously older and widowed. And I asked the pastor through the translator, I said, you know, are, are, is this like the widow section? I want to know what this, this, this lady is where he says, oh no, this is the most honored section in our church. These are widows, and all of their husbands were killed because of the gospel. And I just began rethinking the effort that I put into coming to church. Not attending church is a sin. Can I say it any more clearly? It's a sin. Meeting with others, believers at Starbucks, that's not church. There's no structure of government. There's no church discipline going on there. That's not church. It's not a substitute for church. Coming to church, though, for the wrong reason is a sin, too. We've all come, sat, 
after about a 10 or 15 minute stretch, kind of awakened ourselves to figure out, oh yeah, I'm here and my mind has wandered somewhere else. Look at that last phrase. All the more as you see the day drawing near. The let us, the plural, implies and necessitates reception. We not only give encouragement and we not only give this admonition to love and good deeds and because of the gospel to interact with one another in a way that exhibits love that the unbelieving world looks at and says, wow, I want to be a part of that. It's not only that, but we receive it. Isn't it sometimes easier to give rebuke than to receive it? How's your defense mechanism when someone comes to you and says, hey, I want to ask you about X or Y or Z in your heart. Don't you tell them about A and B and C of the reasons that they're wrong on that? We're a part of the body of Christ. It's interesting, so interesting that the Lord used through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, the, the um, illustration of the body. Romans 12 as well. Why body? And members, arms, legs. He even talks about you know, eyes and feet and hands. We're all members of the same body doing different functions for the body. I um, grew up with my cousin, Terry. She was about six years younger than me, um, she had severe cerebral palsy. She was born with the um, umbilical cord wrapped around her neck. She almost died. They resuscitated her, and she had severe cerebral palsy. deal was, though, Terry's mind was fully, 100% engaged in there. She just had no control to speak and no control over her body. She would sometimes go into these, these spastic fits. We would put socks over her hands so she wouldn't scratch herself. Loved Terry. Used to carry her around. You could communicate very clearly with Terry. She would look up for a yes. She would close her eyes for no. That was the only way you could, you could uh, communicate with her. And she, she received Christ by looking up, by saying yes. Something really cool about that. She died when she was 12. She caught pneumonia, and because of the way she was laying, was not able to recover and, and functionally drown. It was one of the most glorious funerals I've ever been able to be at and even participate in. Um, just sharing what the Lord had done in my life through her. But I've often thought about Terry. What an illustration, unfortunately, that could be of the church today. Her head was there. She was sending out the signals. But her body wasn't listening. Her body was actually fighting itself. Christ is still ahead and he's still sending the signals. Are we listening or are we scratching and clawing the very body in which we're supposed to belong? I get it. I get it. I know there are people in church you don't really like, but you're not like. There's, a, there's this one guy, um, Rod, you know him. Every Sunday, he comes to me and I can see him coming, and I'm, I'm like, no, 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 hi, and I'd say his name. And I had to, I had to pray. I, he was supposed to go with you, by the way. Um, I had to work through that issue with him. <laughs> grow your church. You know what, though? To be honest, he's so good for me. 
The church should, the world should be able to look at how we care for this, this gentleman and say, no one would treat him with due respect and listen to him and care for him. Remember, we're not so lovely ourselves, are we? Our relationship should tell the world something binds us together that's so transcendently different than everything and anything they have. Church is about Christ. Church is about God. And we're to move and motivate one another to do gospel, worship, and ministry better because we've been together. You've been listening to a message by Dr. Rick Holland. Recently spoke at the Bold Church Conference in Columbus. Our students at Nebraska Christian were able to go and, and listen to one of those sessions that Rick spoke at. Rick is the pastor at Mission Road Hills Church in Kansas City, Missouri. City, Missouri. City, Missouri. City, Missouri.